Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along, you can do so by turning with me to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 19 uh, through 34. You can follow along with me in your own Bible or in the Pew Bible uh, that's in front of you, or you can follow along uh, with me in the bulletin where it's been provided for you. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be up in the Smoky Mountains cutting down your Christmas tree, uh, or which I think is illegal, uh, but so you shouldn't be doing that. Or you could be uh, at home watching the World Cup or sitting in the third row watching uh, the World Cup. Uh, or you could be at home uh, watching uh, your favorite Christmas movie, uh, Gremlins or Jumanji, uh, but you're not doing any of those things this morning. You're here with us. And so I really do uh, want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing uh, better that you could do with your time uh, then worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the kindness and the beauty of his salvation. And so I do want to thank you uh, for being with us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week uh, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And we love to hang out. We love to spend time with each other. We love to watch the World Cup together. But we really love uh, to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in urban and university in Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are, a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this Advent season, we're in this series that we've entitled The Glorious Song of Old. And throughout this series, what we've been doing is looking at those first disciples of Jesus, uh, people like Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist, as they rested in those stories of old. And as they longed for God's promises to come to reality. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at John the Baptist and his confessing and his waiting. In his confessing and in his waiting. So with that in mind, let's look together. John chapter 1 uh, verses 19 
through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? <coughs> Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you are a God not hidden nor silent, but one who delights to make yourself known to us. And you've done that in your word by your Holy Spirit, and you've done it ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And it is our prayer that now, over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, that by your grace and mercy, you would attend unto us, that we would see lovely and beautiful things of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would assume that for uh, most of you, these last few weeks have been weeks of joy, but also of waiting. Uh, you've gone from one party and waited for the next party and gone to a party and waited for the next party and slowly your neighborhood has been filling up with inflatables and lights are being strung with care. And if your mail comes, which for some reason the mail in my neighborhood has just stopped coming, uh, your mail is probably uh, filled with cards from friends and family wishing you uh, Feliz Navidad, which according to Duolingo means Merry Christmas in Spanish. And if you then go on to the Netflix uh, late at night to watch a movie and you land on that homepage, you're going to be encouraged to watch those uh, Christmas classics like The Christmas Prince and uh, The Castle for Christmas and The Night with a K Before Christmas. And slowly what we've seen is that more and more presents begin to find their way under the tree. And when we think about this season, we often call this uh, Christmas, but, it, but it's not Christmas, right? It is really just preparation for Christmas, right? The lights and the presents and the movies and the songs and the cards, they all point to the fact that Christmas is coming. 
And in the Christian calendar, that's really what Advent is all about. It is but a sign. It is a sign pointing to the fact that God will come again. And so, just like those weeks before Christmas when you have to wait, when you can barely wait to watch Die Hard on Christmas morning, when you can barely wait for the Grizz to take on the Warriors on Christmas, when you can barely wait to open the presents until you pick up the presents and you shake the box and try to figure out what's in there, and you can barely wait and you're longing for that day where you'll hear those little feet scatter and scurry upstairs and run down the stairs into your room to wake you up. Right, Advent is this season of waiting. But what is it that we are waiting for? And this is really important. What is it that we are really waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus to come back with healing in his wings. That is what we are waiting for. For Jesus to come again and to come and finish what he began at his birth. To come and take away all our sins. To come and fill us with the life of heaven. To come and clear away the thorns and the thistles of this world. To come and dry our tears and meet us in our sorrows and to bring heaven to earth. That is what Advent is all about. It is about waiting for God to finish what he has begun. And that really is the glorious song of old, that, that God will return and make all things new. That's really what John the Baptist is singing about as he uh, confesses and as he waits. And as he's confessing and as he's waiting, he's singing, and his song sounds like this, Not me but him, right? Not me, but him. And I want you to notice that this first stanza is not me. Right up front, John is saying, it's not me. I am not the one you're waiting for. I am not the one who will fix everything. I am not the one who will make everything right. He says it in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked, well, then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so right up front, what John is saying is, I am not what you're looking for. I am not the glorious song of old. I am not the one who will be your king. I am not the one who will come in judgment. I will not be that final word. I am not the one who will heal your wounds or dry your tears. I am not the one who can satisfy your longings. I am not the one who will bring about the kingdom of God. Now to understand why they're asking these questions, it's really important to notice where they are, where these events are occurring. You see it in verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So what's happening here is that John has led the people across the Jordan. And what that means is that John is leading the people of God out of the promised land and into the wilderness. And this is essentially a prophetic act of exile. Because when God's people have turned away from the Lord, they've always been exiled from his presence. 
You think about uh, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God and what they were cast out of the garden. They were exiled into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, they were surrounded by the thorns and the thistles. They were hounded and surrounded by suffering and death. And then worst of all, they weren't just cast out of a beautiful, perfect place. They were cast out of the beautiful, perfect presence of the Father. They were exiled. But if you keep reading the Bible uh, past the third page, uh, you'll remember that God's desire and God's heart was to dwell with his people once again. That, that God wanted to be our God and he wanted us to be his people. And so God made a promise. He said, look, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you this garden where you can dwell with me forever. And I want you to be my people living in the land with me so that you might know my love, so that you might celebrate my provision, so that you might walk in my way, so that my goodness and my love and my justice and my mercy and my glory might fill the earth. And so God made this promise to this man in particular named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people, so follow me. And when you follow me, I'm going to give you this land. And, and throughout the Bible, then this promised land became the hope and it became the direction, it became the desire of God's people. And so in many ways, this, this promised land, as we've seen over and over again, is, is this new Eden, it's this new garden, it's, it's this new creation where God would dwell with his people once again in peace and harmony and love and in flourishing. But sadly, after we inherited the land, we go in, we, we build the cities, we, we build the temple, and then we turned away, just as Adam did, we turned away from God once again. And, and we began to worship the idols of the nations that were around us. We, we began to long, not for God to be our king, but we longed to have a king just like the other nations. And so rather than pursuing God and rather than reflecting his image, we began to pursue the world. And we have begun to reflect the world's values and therefore, God exiled uh, Israel from the land. He exiled us from the land into the hands of the Assyrians, later into the hands of the Babylonians. And then after having been exiled into Babylon for about 70 years, God came, he called us to repentance, and he said, I want you to return to me. I want you to dwell with me once again and to know my love, to know my forgiveness, to know my care for you. And so Israel then returns to the land, and when they go back into the land, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple. But sadly, our hearts didn't change. And our hearts still long for the things of this world. And we remained a people who were surrounded by oppression and affliction. And we longed for peace. We longed for rest. We, we even longed to obey God and yet either we wouldn't or we couldn't. And politically, we found ourselves under the thumb of, of foreign leaders and foreign rulers. And even at the time of John the Baptist, they find themselves under the thumb of Caesar who saw himself and claimed himself to be a god. And then think about religiously, under the thumb of the Pharisees who, as Jesus said, tied up heavy burdens hard to bear and laid them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves were not willing to remove them with their finger. And then think about morally how we find ourselves 
neglecting the word of God, neglecting God's justice, neglecting his mercy, lacking humility before God and before the world. And we long for things to be new. We, we long for that kingdom of God to come on earth just as it is in heaven. And so when John came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what we are waiting for. This is what we long for. We long for God's kingdom to come. But when we thought about this, we knew that we were not worthy of that kingdom. We knew that the institutions of the land, we knew that the temples of the land, we knew that the palaces of the land were not worthy. They were not clean. But we also knew that our hearts were not clean. And our hearts, too, needed to be cleansed. We needed, all things needed to be made new. And so John led them out into the wilderness. And I want you to think about what's happening here. This is this new exile. I mean, ironically, the people are leaving the promised land and they're crossing over into that wilderness. And what is the wilderness? But, it, but it's this place of judgment. It's a place of exile. It's a place of longing and sorrow and isolation and death. It's this place of separation from God and from one another. Essentially, it's life outside the garden. It, it, it's, it's creation undone. And this is where John takes the people of God. And he takes the people of God out into the wilderness, out into the exile. And he says, verse 23, make straight the way of the Lord. Why make straight the way of the Lord? Because we've messed it up. And he's saying, look, we have made a mess in the land and the land needs to be cleansed. It must have a path cleared. Everything that stands in the way of the Lord must be removed. And this is where we sit in the midst of Advent. We sit there in the wilderness, longing for God's presence, longing for him to make all things new, because we are all bruised and broken by the fall. We are all bruised and broken by personal, by generational by political, by national, by religious, by economic, by military, by social, by public and private sin. And this beautiful earth upon which we dwell no longer reflects the kingdom of heaven in the way it was made to. And not only that, the, 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 the garden has become overrun by the thorns and the thistles of the fall. And this is why every gospel tells us that John came preaching the message of repentance. And it's in this strange way that when we think about repentance, repentance is actually that Advent song of hope. Repentance is really all about hope. Now I would assume that that might sound strange to some of your ears because often when we hear of this call to repentance, what we hear is uh, someone being mean, we hear someone being judgmental, we hear someone saying, get your act together. But that's not what repentance is all about. Repentance is a desperate act of hope. Repentance is saying, I need somebody to do what I cannot do. I want the world to change, but I can't change it. 
And if I'm honest, I can't even change myself. I've tried to be the change that I want to see and I haven't changed and I haven't seen it. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest, you still find yourself in the wilderness longing to be different, longing to know what to love, longing to know how to love, still longing to love what you know you ought to love, but not loving those things you ought to love, still longing to do the things you know you ought to do, but do not do them. And at times, we find ourselves just like John the Baptist in verse 31 and 33. Though we long for the kingdom and though we love Jesus, we often do not see him. We often do not recognize him. We often do not understand his ways. And we find ourselves sort of stumbling around in the darkness and stumbling around in our ignorance. Because as Paul says, we see but dimly. And what is our longing but to see in full? You see, the Advent song is a song that is sung in the wilderness. And it is a song of hope that says, not me, but him. Now, I'm assuming that for, to some of you this might sound depressing and this might sound discouraging. It might sound as if it betrays the very spirit of Christmas, which is that spirit of comfort and joy. But there's no comfort and there is no joy apart from God. There, there is no comfort to be found in ourselves. And if our only hope is in ourselves... If our only hope is in me, if our only hope is in our, some political figure or some political party or some football coach or some job or some paycheck or some institution, if, if our hope is that if we could all just come together and get it right, then we would usher in the kingdom of God, we will be disappointed because we have never done it. And if we are our only hope, then there is no hope at all. But the hope of Advent is not ourselves. The hope of Advent is God. And the hope of repentance is God. Now again, to some of you, that might not sound all that hopeful because you might say, well, if Jesus, if God actually came as the Christ, why is the world still in the state it is? Or does, does the Lord hear? Does he care? Where is he? And I would think that many of you have felt this in your own life is, you haven't seen the change you want to see. Yet you haven't seen the newness that you long for. I would assume that many of you have sat on the floor rubbing the back of your child in the midst of their illness and they're crying out, why can't you help me? And you rub their back and you say, I don't know, I can't. And I want you to get better and you cry out to Jesus and you just sit there with them and you hold them. I, I'm sure you have felt that as you have held the hand of a spouse or a parent as they've passed away. I, I'm sure that you feel it as you drive down Broadway through the Mission District every day and you can't change it. I'm sure you feel it every day as that old sin cries out to you once again and you cannot ignore it. Right? This is where we sit. We sit in this wilderness and we cannot get out of the wilderness by ourselves. And so in the midst of Advent, what we do is we cry out to God, we look to him. 
This is what Advent is about. This is what repentance is all about. It is about hoping against hope that God can do what we cannot do. It is about acknowledging our weakness and looking to God in his strength. It is about trusting and hoping and expecting that God will come again, do everything that he has said. It is about hoping that he will come again with healing in his wings. That he is the one who will come and judge right from wrong. He is the one who will come and dry our tears. He is the one who will forgive our sins. He is the one who will cover our shame. He is the one who heals our wounds and will cover the earth with his glory. You see, in some strange way, Advent is just filled with hope because it points us away from ourselves and it points us to God. It it sings that glorious song of old, not me, but him. And that's what John the Baptist does. He says, not me, but verse 27, he who comes after me the strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And what he's saying is that someone who is greater than me, someone who is better than me, someone who is more powerful than me is on his way. And then he makes this beautiful confession. You see it in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what's amazing to me in this passage is that we see God coming to us in the wilderness. That's the movement of God, that he comes to us in the wilderness. It is our assumption as human beings that in order to come into the presence of God, we get ourselves right and we leave the wilderness. The story of the Bible is that God comes to us in the wilderness, and he makes us new. That he comes to us in the midst of our loneliness. He comes to us in our sickness, our sin, our sorrow, our pain, and our death. And and John is saying, behold, look, Jesus is coming. And why does he come? Well, obviously, the text is telling us that he comes to take away our sin. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that's the point, that this little child was born in order to die. He was born in order to go to the cross because he's the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb who bears our sins and makes his people right and acceptable. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He's also that suffering servant of Isaiah who comes to suffer with us, who comes to suffer for us, and is like a lamb carried away to the slaughter in order to carry away and to bear our sins. And what this means is that John is saying to us, look, y'all, we have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. But knowing that you have a sin problem and then diagnosing your sin problem doesn't change the fact that you have a problem. And it doesn't change the fact that our sin actually separates us from God. It doesn't change the fact that the wages of sin is death. And so what does John tell us to do with this problem? What does he tell us to do with our sin? He says to turn away from it and look to Jesus. 
Because Jesus will deal with our sin. Jesus will take it away. Jesus will bear the guilt. Jesus will cover your shame. Jesus will bear the judgment we deserve. And Jesus will give you the righteousness you need. You see, the point of this is like, what do you do with your sin? When you're confronted with your sin, when you're convicted with your sin, when you're overwhelmed by your sin, when you're ashamed of your sin, what do you do? Stop looking at it and turn and look to Christ because he is the one who can bear it. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. But he's not just this lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to notice that he's also the one who has the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see this in verse 31. The Spirit remained on him. And so in verse 24, the people come, they ask John, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And so it's kind of confusing maybe what's all this, what's going on here. Here's the deal. The Jews uh, were waiting for someone to come and to pour out the spirit of God or the life of heaven, the life of God upon the world. And they were hoping, they were expecting that that would be some great figure, someone maybe like the Messiah King who would come and sit on the throne of David and defeat all his enemies and rule and reign in peace. Or maybe it would be Elijah, the one who had been taken up in the whirlwind, Maybe he would come back, and when he comes back, he would usher in that great day of the Lord, that day when God would come in judgment. He would defeat all that is evil, and he would establish the kingdom. Or maybe it would be that prophet who was going to be greater than Moses would come, and his voice is the voice that the world would listen to, and we'd be ushered back in to the presence of God in his land. And this was their expectation. And so when they saw John baptizing, they thought, well, you must be him. You must be the one we've been waiting for. And he says, no, that's not who I am. And they say, well, then why are you baptizing if you're not the one with the spirit, if you're not the one to give the life of the world? And he says, look, I want you to understand who I am. I'm a voice. I'm a pointer. I'm here to tell you about the one who is going to come and do these things. And when I baptize, I'm just baptizing with water. And this water is a sign, it's a pointer to point you to the one who will come and will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And he's saying there is one who will come and he will pour out the life of God upon the world. There is one who will come and he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit to rule and reign forever. There is one who is going to come and be anointed by the Spirit and will judge all things. There is one who will come anointed by the Holy Spirit who will have the voice of God that we will follow and he will usher us back into the presence of the Lord. Now to drive this point home a little bit further, I'll make a simple text complicated. I want you to remember uh, where all of this is happening. We've said it's happening in the wilderness, right? But more specifically, verse 28, in Bethany across the Jordan. So something happened at this place many years before this event. And I know that our former missionaries, uh, Ryan and Glenda Bowles, have been to this site, uh, Bethany across the Jordan. And this is a site that is not only where John the Baptist was uh, baptizing and where Jesus was baptized. It's also the site that is talked about in 2 Kings chapter 2. 
where our friend Elijah the prophet was taken up into the whirlwind. And if you know this story here, if you, if you don't know the story, here's what happened. Elijah was this prophet, and his main mission was a ministry of repentance. He was calling the people of God to repentance. And at the end of his ministry, he and his successor, a guy named Elisha, they went throughout the land and called everyone to repentance, and then they crossed over the Jordan River. They crossed out of the promised land into the wilderness, and this was a prophetic act of exile. And they were symbolically leading God's people out of the promised land into the wilderness. They were being exiled for the wickedness of God's people. And all along the journey, Elisha keeps asking for a double portion of the Spirit. And so Elijah is then taken up into this whirlwind. And as he is taken up, his, his garment falls and the Spirit descends upon Elijah. And it's like a baptism. And what is happening is that Elijah is then anointed by the Spirit. And what does Elisha then do? He goes back across the Jordan to lead God's people back into the ways of God and back into the presence of the Lord in the promised land. So this is amazing because what's happening here is the very same thing that's happening with John the Baptist and Jesus. It's a recapitulation or a pre-capitulation of what was happening in 2 Kings. John, like Elijah was leading the people, calling the people to repentance, leading them out into exile. But there in the wilderness, John does not have the power or the authority to bring God's people back into the presence of God. He can't lead them out of the wilderness. He can't restore God's promised presence with the people. And so he says, not me, but him. He says, behold the Lamb of God. He says, look at Jesus, the one upon whom the Spirit of God rests. And notice that it's not just a lamb that is talked about, but it's a dove that is talked about, that Spirit descending at the baptism. What is it described as? It says it's like a dove. Now, do you remember the last time we saw a dove in the Bible? It's in the book of Genesis, after the flood. And what was the flood? We could say it was the judgment of God. We could also say it was the cleansing of the earth. It was the cleansing of the land. And, and as the flood began to recede, what happened? The new creation began to rise up and, and vineyards were, were growing and, and the earth was being restored. And do you remember that there on the ark, Noah then released a dove and that dove, it didn't come back. And why did it not come back? Well, presumably, uh, it didn't come back because it had landed safely upon the new creation. And here we see the dove once again. And that dove is resting upon Jesus. And who is Jesus? But he is that new creation. The one who, who leads us through the flood of judgment. The one who goes forward in judgment to cleanse the earth. And to bring about the new creation. And he is the one who will then lead us through the judgment out of the wilderness. Into the promised life and rest of God. That's just a long storied embodied way of saying. Jesus is the one who will make all things new. It's not you. It's not me. But it is Christ. 
And he is the one that we are waiting for. He is the one who can deal with our sin. He is the one who deals with our guilt. He's the one who deals with our shame. And he's the one who will come again to judge right and wrong. He's the one who will make all things right. He's the one who comes with healing. He's the one who brings peace. He's the one who will change the world. And he is the one who will change you. And it is his voice that will then fill the earth and all will follow and all will be led back to the Father. And this is a big deal, I think, because when we find ourselves there in the wilderness, uh, our thoughts about God are that he's abandoned us, that he's forgotten us, that he cannot and will not help us. And so when we feel those things, what do we do? We take things into our own hands thinking we can do it. And John comes out to us in the midst of the wilderness and he says, you can't. Not me, not you, but him. And that's the hope of Advent. That's the confession of John the Baptist, that Jesus is coming. And this is good news because the one who is coming is the one who is strong. And the one who is coming is the one who is good. And the one who is coming is the one whose heart is filled with love. And so as we prepare to come to this table, I want you to behold the Lamb of God. As we look at this table, we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the movement is that God has come to us from heaven to bring peace to us from him. He's the one who takes away our sin. He is the one who loves us. And then he is the one who then feeds us with himself so that we might get a taste of his spirit. So that through this meal, his spirit might give us a taste of the life of heaven, which then makes us long for the kingdom and begin living for the kingdom on earth as we await heaven. And then this meal is a promise to us. It's a promise that he will come again. And when he comes again, he will lead us out of the wilderness into his healing presence.